Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Lucky 13, (laughs) bonus COVID-13. Bonus COVID-13. So this is going through the most recent, you know, big topic articles in the last week or so. So we're going to start with, it is a preprint, but it's a very important topic, especially obviously this fall as there are some schools that have started already in our country, but yet none here. So what happened when they did this huge, amazing modeling analysis in San Francisco Bay Area. And I thought this was just super cool. So what they figured was if you look back at the school closings and everything shut down, and they basically said that shutting down the schools did have the same impact as shutting down the businesses, blah, blah, blah. But then when they take models and assuming children less than 10 were half as susceptible to infection in older adults, they kind of looked at what would happen in the fall. Basically, all the closure effects are going to be driven by the high school and middle school closures because obviously the kids under 10 are not in those schools. But basically what they showed is that if fall school reopenings will increase the symptomatic illness among high school teachers, an estimated 40.7%, which is pretty significant. That's pretty significant. Yes. Middle school teachers, 37.2%. Obviously still significant, hair lower than the high school, but still pretty close. But elementary school teachers, it's only going to increase the symptomatic illness by 4.1%. Yeah, and there's been a lot of concern. I've actually had patients who are elementary teachers, and I've been trying to explain this, that their risk is actually substantially less. Right. So, And of course, there's a lot of dependent uncertain parameters. The susceptibility infectiousness of children is not yet perfectly known. What's going on in the community? So there's a lot of these other things. And so what they recommend is to get the, basically to get the interventions in place to have teachers, you know, not get as impacted. They do recommend, and it does vary by grade level, obviously, but they do recommend a hybrid learning approach for in high schools and middle schools to classes of 10 students or fewer just try to hybrid that which is not that many students and then if you're thinking elementary school just cohorts of 20 students or fewer so that's you can just pile those young kids up pile them in (laughs) i hope not but still 100 kids in a room but you need to kind of focus on all these things of course and this this article will have another article about school stuff that comes up talking about you know other mitigation strategies And then we had a little article from the Journal of Thrombosis. Thrombolysis. Don't have a thrombo. Never mind. That's from a movie. Okay, so they did a little thing on safety of intermediate dose low molecular weight heparin in some of the COVID-19 patients. And this is actually interesting because if we, you know, think about it, that coagulopathy is a big part of all of this. Coagulopathy, that's a fun word. It is. <laughs> and there's more morbidity and mortality because of that with the COVID-19. So what are they doing? You know, are, Is giving it making a difference? And, well, I think, and do you need higher doses? Yeah. And they actually looked at two different doses, The um, you know, doing 80 milligrams per day or 40 of basically uh, the low molecular heparin. And it was interesting what they found. 
Uh, they really didn't see any bleeding to speak of, just 2%. Right. So I think that was really pretty interesting. And only 6.7% of these patients actually needed transfusions or red blood cells, and only one thrombo. One guy had a PE. So, so really not a lot. And, of course, when compared to the younger patients, patients older than 85, obviously, higher mortality, 40% versus 13 But, again, still no increased risk of bleeding. So the, the risk of using it is small. And does it, it prevent looks like there's people? pretty good benefit. I mean, this was 64% had severe COVID. So Yeah. yeah. So everybody's using it. Use the heparin. Low molecular weight heparin. Low molecular weight heparin. So now we're going to move on to rheumatological internal medicine, international something or other. This is by, excuse me, Fernando Montero Ooh. at all. We didn't mention that. I changed my name to Kurt Montero. Not Punjabi. Or Punjabi. <laughs> okay, so this is coronavirus disease, COVID-19, and autoimmune and inflammatory conditions. So... This is that big thing we talked about months ago about are people who are on autoimmune modulators or who have autoimmune diseases more at risk. So this is looking at people with RMD, so rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases who are on like DMARDs. So the whole disease modifying, or excuse me, disease modifying anti-rheumatological drugs. So like your Humira's, your Enbrel's, all those things. But what they found is that, so they looked at 62 patients um, median age was just under net four, 40, no, 61, 60. <laughs> 42% were men. 42 of the 62 patients were in the hospital. The people who were hospitalized, it's no surprise. were more likely to be older men with comorbidities. Stop. Sorry. And, but basically they found no statistical significance between the group, um, for baseline immunosuppressive therapy, except for patients who were on glucocorticoids, prior to admission. So basically, having an autoimmune disease or being on the uh, the, the immune-modulating drugs so that you think would make you more immunosuppressed did not increase your risk of hospitalization. Being male with lung disease and previously on steroids did increase your risk of hospitalization. Again, just being male. I might as well just sleep in a call room and wait for it to hit me. It's like, dang it. No, we're going to get male. to the aerosolized thing. You can't be in a call room. Oh, that's probably true. So then we had a little something from the European European Journal of, that was hard for me to say, of hematology. And this was actually by Irene Pacos at Al. I think that's Pacos. Pacos? I would say Pacos, but. So the background of this really uh, was this this whole deal that there's a lot that remains unknown about kind of the features of lab findings that may predict worse outcomes. You know, we. Uh, we've seen different things about high D-dimers, high CRPs, all these different things. And they were looking at something uh, with patients who had COVID-19 and some of the characteristics of their CBCs. So basically they just took a real close look at this. And what they showed was patients with COVID-19 who died had significantly lower mean absolute monocyte counts. Now, we've not really talked about monocytes in the mm-hmm. last few months. We keep talking about lymphocytes and how low they are. But this is all about the monocytes and their median platelet counts. So people with lower platelet counts uh, uh, did worse. And people with these low median absolute monocyte counts did worse. So a little bit different twist. But also the higher neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. Yeah, I'm not really calculating that in my day-to-day. It's like, oh, let me quick check. But those people did worse. I know. So there you go. 
Yeah. Done. Monocytes and platelets, if they're low, not Sorry. good. And if you're a man and you have that, it's even worse, I suppose. <laughs> An old male. Dang it. All right. So this next article, Ryan Hu Cho et al. So this was in the Journal of Laryngoscopy. Laryngoscope. Makes me kind of gag just when you say <laughs> laryngoscopy. I just like, it's like bronchial secretions. Ugh. Gross. Yes. Okay, anyway, so they looked at this prospective cross-sectional cohort study. So they looked at 143 symptomatic patients who were all being tested for COVID. Some were positive, some were symptomatic but negative. And they really looked at the people who had loss of smell or taste, right? Yes. 39% or excuse me, 47% had loss of smell, 43% had loss of taste. But really, when you looked at that, overall... The high prevalence of smell and taste loss, yes, we all know that this exists now, even though it was never one of the first symptoms of COVID. Now it's well known. I think in some this regard, if you look at those percentages, the loss of taste and smell are actually higher than fever. Isn't yeah, that? Like the yeah. last one we read was like 44% fever. Yeah. But anyway, basically the severity of and recovery from these two symptoms have no correlation with the viral load of SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, and in fact, we saw a lot of stuff weeks Just ago. Just two weeks ago, yeah. That, uh, in fact, people that have this taste and smell problem, well, they don't get as sick. They just don't get as sick. So there it's a go. good thing. So, And we're not saying that people who smell or people who don't smell... <laughs> People who can't smell, that's different. Old men who smell like old yeah. men. And if you're a man and you smell. Old spice, you're going down. <laughs> Just kidding. you got about a week to live. No, good. So this was a little something on the receptor utilization of angiotensin converting enzyme. The ACE2. Yeah. This was in uh, magazine. Uh, magazine. <laughs> <laughs> this was in Time. No, this was actually in trans, Transbound Emergency Diseases. Trans Emergency Diseases. Let's say that in August 13th. And this this guy's name was Kwong Wong. At <laughs> all. At all. I dare you to read all of those names. Not a chance. Uh, but yeah, this uh, basically pointed out that this pandemic is obviously a huge threat to public health and all the different issues that we're having with SARS and the pandemic in 2003 previously. So both of these virus, SARS-CoV and SARS-CoV-2, so the current one is SARS-CoV-2, COVID, yeah. and, and the other one is SARS, also known as yeah. SARS. I was starting to get mixed up. So, yes, you were. Yeah, I so, had to clarify yeah, that for so you. So both, both viruses, they believe, again, originated from bats. And I, I don't mean like baseball bats. These are like flying bats, just so you know how it <sighs> And uh, The only good thing about bats is they eat mosquitoes. Yeah. Um, thus, <laughs> uh, you know, the director entered indirect interspecies transmission from bats to humans is required for the cause of this pandemic. And of course, there's been some speculation what those other animals in between might the pangolin. be. And that's the reason we're even doing this is because it was that pangolin. But uh, they're talking a little bit about the receptor utilization, which is really a key factor uh, for these host range of viruses. And it's really critical to kind of this interspecies transmission. I don't know if you want to talk or you yeah, because you're like rambling. I think you're yeah, lost. Like, Basically, SARS can impact more animals than SARS-CoV-2, which is our current issue. That's where I was going. Doesn't hit as many animals. I mean, so but basically all your murine animals, so like your whales and your dolphins, they're they're golden. Go hang out with them. Oh, good. But and your non-mammals. So, so SeaWorld is open. You. Hey, 
that was good. Thanks. But you're not getting you're not getting COVID from you know a lizard. Yeah, lizards are safe. Salamanders probably safe. Yeah. Pangolins don't hug not one. Safe. Oh, they're scary. So anyway, you obviously need to like study the susceptibility in these animals, but this was more of a funny one because we could say pangolin and you can hug a dolphin. Remember, pangolins, they have keratin scales. Keratin scales. Kind of like Like fingernails. fingernails. That one's for you, Jude, because I know you'll probably hear that if your dad hears it when he makes the music. Yep. Comparing nasopharyngeal swabs and early morning saliva. <laughs> it's like like an early morning urine. No, this is saliva. That's how you do a pregnancy test. It's cl- the first urine of the day. So this is in clinical infectious disease just on August 6th. It was actually by Mohan Rao. That's a better one with a lot of other people. Yeah, Farooz Rashid. I like that one too, but et al. Shia Sabri. That's a good one. I like all of these names. Anyway, keep so going. So go ahead. Okay, so they looked at... A single center study which recruited 217 asymptomatic adult males. They had to use the males because they're more likely to get sick. But basically, they had all tested positive um, by a nasal pharyngeal swab. But here's the kicker. They had tested positive 8 to 10 days prior to this whole study being done. But what they found is is that 74% of them all tested positive based on saliva, nasopharyngeal, or both. So... My question is, if they had all tested positive 8 to 10 days prior, now in this study, only 74% are still testing positive 10 days later. That's what that means. Okay. If you take the ones who had tested positive, they said, you know, so now we're a couple weeks out, that you could detect SARS-CoV-2, so COVID, higher in saliva compared to the nasal pharyngeal swab, 93% versus 52%. The key is, is... This study was done on people who did have COVID, but well, who it was had positive tests. positive PCR testing prior almost two weeks ago, and now you're just retesting them, and now the saliva is still positive, whereas the nasal pharyngeal half and half. So, don't really know what it all means, but this is just another step into the saliva testing world. Sadly, I don't know what body fluid I should be testing. It's just so confusing now. Here, could you pee in a cup and just give me some spit just in case? Okay, I don't know. You did say early morning. Yeah, and yeah, make sure it's right away when you get up, spit in this thing. All right. Right after you pee in this one. Now we got a preprint. And this is actually interesting because there's been a lot of stuff in the news here recently about the aerosolization of this whole... No, I mean... Are we... We're I know, I'm joking. I was like teasing that, no, this is not an aerosolized, it's a droplet infection, which has obviously been proven wrong a million times. I'm just trying to be funny. Oh, it didn't work. Failing. <laughs> and so this was actually, uh, again, a preprint, and this was by John A. Lednicki et al. I don't know why he got his name first. I, I don't know how that works. But anyway, the background of this, they... Um, because I'd really like you to say this person. Kachichantran Subram... Manium? Yeah, maybe they put John's name first because it's easier to say. But anyway, basically, there's just been all this controversy about, you know, aerosolization of COVID-2. And this little study was really to look at that. And really what they found was that viable virus was isolated from air samples in a room where somebody was positive for COVID. And it was collected 2 to 4.8 meters away from this patient. So... And the genome sequence, and that's, uh, yeah. that's more than the whole six feet recommendation. 
Uh, yeah, it is. But you're in a room, and there's been a lot of talk about. Remember, we had that one study where it said if you were in a room for more than 15 minutes, and it was an average size room, like the size of a exam room, for 15 minutes your risk was X. You know, so very, very low. But especially if there's no good ventilation or there's not a window open. So, so this was interesting that uh, they're finding viable virus, and it can be 4.8 meters. My gosh, that's like 13, 14 feet, if you do your math. Somewhere in there. Yeah. So it is aerosolized. Oh, darn it. And it's viable virus. We're not just finding RNA. We're actually finding the viable virus in the air. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the studies, of course, that we have talked about previously were they were finding RNA protein, right? Right. But, but that was, was more the surfaces. On the surfaces. But was it? The question is always, is it viable? Well, is it aerosolized? So basically you're saying. Yeah. You're sucking it in. Okay, I'm I'll four do this feet one. from you, and I'm worried. So no, we're six feet away, and you know, oh. social distancing. Okay, we have two left. I will do this one, and then you can do the funny one at the end. Okay. Oh, is it funny? Maybe. Uh, okay, another preprint. This is by Alfonso Landeros et al. Um, an examination of school reopening strategies. So this is kind of the piggyback on the other one, and this is looking at what type of things may help mitigate. The spread of this virus. Okay. So basically they looked at reducing class size. That was part one. Part two, transmission mitigation. So using masks, desk shields, frequent cleaning, outdoor instruction. And then the third thing they looked at was viral detection on cumulative prevalence. So that's like your testing. So basically if you do all three of these, you can substantially reduce SARS-CoV-2 prevalence. So this is what all the preparedness plans in the schools are looking at. Basically all these three things. But... What they're showing is reducing the class density and obviously testing um, has a greater impact on the other, greater impact on slowing transmission than, you know, all of the other um, mitigation things like masks and stuff. So class size and frequent testing, again, testing is just comical because you can't do that. But if you could do those two things, even without doing the masking and the cleaning, your chances of spreading it is lower. But of course, right now, the recommendation is do all three. And this was looked at K through 12. I don't think, you know, this This isn't our last one, but I, we haven't really talked about the ongoing study we've had here with the citrus carbonated beverage. We have actually oh. three people now who are in this study who have not gotten COVID. Correct. And they are drinking from one to five citrus drinks per day. I know Dr. Noska is not sick yet. Correct. So, so it could be. It's a certain type of citrus beverage that we can't advertise on air but yeah. if you if you want to reach out to us it's pre-print if this you want to reach out to us I, i'm still good <coughs> oh whatever dm me at, at uh, twitter at echo csct and you can let me know if you want to know what the citrus beverage is yeah but i'm i'm thinking it might be protective i think so too so last one this was actually a preprint as well by anna farg no fagre like fabre except fagre and, it could uh, be Farge. Farge. could be French. Mm. But this Juliette is little, Lewis, isn't she famous? Yeah. So SARS-CoV-2 infection, neuropath- <laughs> neuropathogenesis and transmission amongst deer mice. Because I know I got a couple of deer mice. <laughs> I didn't mean to hit that. Jeez. you have a It's like... I got a couple deer mice as pets, and I'm really worried about this. <laughs> but this is the implications for reverse zoonosis. 
And so basically, uh, can humans give it to mice? Can mice give it back to humans? And I know there's a lot of stress out there of people with deer mice as pets. <laughs> it's like, well, my goodness, am I going to give this to my pet? But it does appear that when you give COVID two to a deer mouse, they get a well, they get a robust, not just a little. They get a robust viral replication. Are in they the using that based on their size or compared to humans? I don't know, but it's robust. <laughs> and uh, and they get detectable viral RNA for 21 days, those in little buggers. Swabs. Yeah, and swabbing a deer mouse in the <laughs> mouth is not easy. I can just... <laughs> but, uh, or swabbing 14 days later in the lungs. Yeah, it's like, okay, let's just shove that thing into the lungs. But anyway, so... Uh, they could just use a cute... They actually showed that they had virus entry into their brain as well. And likely had that whole smell, smell and taste, but it's really hard to ask a deer <laughs> mouse. It's like, hey man, are you smelling that cheese or not? Um, but uh, did they yeah. do the study in Wisconsin? This was actually in Wisconsin. No, that's a lie. Uh, and they had, uh, occasionally they actually showed that they had uh, compromise to their blood-brain barrier. So this is interesting because none of these mice really had obvious signs of disease, and actually no deer mice succumbed to this infection. I think that's. Really, the take-home point here is that no if you mice have, were harmed. Yes, if you, in this study, if you have deer mice as a pet, uh, don't worry, they're <laughs> going to make it. So they, they're basically, they're they're saying that the deer mice are probably a suitable animal model for a study of SARS-CoV-2. So that's really the takeaway. And the second thing is, oh gosh, those things could cut, if you're really snuggling with your deer mice. <laughs> they could be a reservoir host and could lead to outbreaks of COVID-19. Okay, that's that's actually all joking This is aside. all true. No, but that's that that could be a problem because if yep. COVID goes away and then mm. the mice Well, this would make you not want to have live traps for mice. Just saying. Or like, but then here's my question. This is a good question. You have deer mice and then you have cats. Yep. Cats catch the mice. Do the cats Ooh. get COVID from the mice and then can the cats give it back to you? But they're not dogs. So yes. if the cat got the mouse and the dog got the cat, you could get it from your dog because cats don't spread it as much. No, no. You got it backwards. Oh, I did. Oh, cats okay. actually, from the studies that we saw early on, cats seem to shed more virus. And that's why you don't like cats. And dogs seem to be man's best friend. And that's so they right. rarely give the man uh, illness. And of course, when men do get it, it's bad. Women, not so bad. But it's man's best friend, not woman's best friend. Yeah, so cats, bad. bad. So cats catching the deer mice, though. So this could be a thing. Could be a thing. All right, well, I think we're about done, thank goodness. <laughs> thank goodness. So uh, we'll let Battle Lakes take over. And this was a little harder this week because the search engine that we were using previously to kind of get us stuff kind of wasn't working right. So we had to come up with our own stuff. No, but these are harder. real studies. We didn't just come up with them. Oh, yeah, we didn't make these. <laughs> They're real things. Okay, anyway. Battle eggs, please save us. And then uh, do we have Charlie Resnikoff coming up on Wednesday Wednesday for our opioid echo. And Tuesday, I don't know if I can recall who we have on the COVID echo. A chipmunk just ran by. <laughs> look at squirrel. You know, I don't remember. You'll have to look at our tweet, Twitter because then I'll figure that out. Yeah, it's uh, the Twitter at echo. Oh, you know, we CSC. do have Krista Hagen coming back with a lot of med stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of drug stuff coming up on um, the COVID echo on Tuesday. Yeah, should be good. All right. Well, thanks. We'll let Battle Lakes take over. One, two, three. 
on the hillside. Little boxes made of ticky tacky. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes all the same. There's a green one and a pink one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same. I went to the university where they were putting boxes, and they all came out the same. And there's doctors and lawyers and business executives, and they're all made out of ticky tacky, and they all look just the same. And they all play on the golf course and drink. Martinis drive, and they all have three children, and the children go to school, and the children go to summer camp, and then to the university where they are put in boxes, and they all come out the same.